Amen. Good morning, church. How we doing? We doing good? Good. Okay. Some of you are good. It's a little earlier. I get it. Hey, growing up, if you're, if you're new to church, uh, growing up for me, I went to a, a church much like our church, traditional kind of Baptist church, not kind of Baptist church. It was a Baptist church. Um, and uh, one of the things that we did every Easter Sunday was, and don't do it yet for those of you who know what's coming, okay, uh, is the pastor would come on stage and he would say, he is risen, and the whole congregation would say, he is risen indeed, okay? So I wanted everybody to be included in my first opportunity to be able to do this as a senior pastor, so you all know your cue, right? He is risen. He is risen. Amen, church. Let's get after this morning. Man. Uh, for those of you who are new with us, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and, and this is my first Easter Sunday here with you all. And I hope that uh, for some of you out here, it's your first Easter Sunday as well. So we have, it's good news, we got something in common, we can chat about it later. Um, but uh, it, as you came in, I hope you saw the photo booth that was, uh, that was right outside. I know some of you were racing in with like four kids on your arm and throwing them in the classrooms, but get them afterwards, especially if they still look okay. Um, um, and, uh, and snap that photo out front. We'd love to, uh, to, to see your posts on Facebook and Instagram and that sort of thing. And literally, I hope you saw our wall of donuts, literally a wall of donuts. And so, um, yeah, one person's like, yeah, I saw it. And I destroyed half of it. But if, uh, if you didn't get a donut, we literally have hundreds of donuts. And so please go back there, eat one, throw a couple in your purse, especially like if you don't have any plans until late afternoon, like I get that on Easter, right? Go grab a donut or two or something like that. Um, but like I said, full disclosure, man, this is my first Easter Sunday, my first one as a senior pastor anyway, and I get the opportunity to, to bring the word and the gospel. I wasn't looking for a round of applause, but I'll take it. Um, but, uh, but this is my first one, like being in charge, right? Being a senior pastor, is, it's, it's different because there's, a, there, there's some perks with it, and there's also a lot of things that aren't so perky about it. Um, and so like one of the perks of being a senior pastor is really great is uh, like if I want to take a vacation day, I don't have to ask anybody. I'm just like, I'm going to take a vacation day, right? And so I wake up, I'm a little tired, whatever. Hey, I'm taking a vacation day today. I'm like, okay, fine. You, uh, you don't have to ask anybody. You just go take your vacation day. Uh, some of the downsides about being in charge though is that oftentimes you, know, you feel like the success and the failure of, of different things that you're putting on really kind of rises and falls on leadership. Right, And so because of that, there's often times where like, man, something didn't go as good as maybe I wanted it to go. Because of that, I'm like, man, that just, that really stunk. That wasn't as good as I wanted to. Or like, man, something is awesome. And like, you know, we had a lot of people concerned about that donut wall. And I saw people grabbing donuts off, those who are not germaphobes, right? Everybody else in here is like, no, I have Purell in my purse. I'll be fine. Thank you. Um, but like when something goes well, like, yeah, we did something good. That's exciting. You put your team on your shoulders. You're like, man. Our team killed it. We did an awesome job. Um, so there's some good things about a senior being a senior pastor, some frustrating things at times about being a senior pastor. But one of the most exciting things for me about being a senior pastor has been getting the opportunity to flex um, my spiritual gifting uh, on a regular basis. So for those of you who are new to faith, spiritual gifts are something that you receive when you, um, uh, when you accept Christ in your life, the spiritual or the, uh, the Holy Spirit delivers then those things 
to you. And so those things really come alive. And for me, it's teaching and preaching. So I get the opportunity to teach and preach every single Sunday and utilize those spiritual gifts, which is really, really exciting. But I've had some people ask me in the past, like, hey, how is it that you prepare a message? Like how, like organizing a message and that sort of thing? Because for me, I grew up, right? And I, ha- I had the standard like pastor model, right? Three points, a uh, piece of scripture under each point, three sub points after the piece of scripture, and then you go to the next one and then you call it a day, right? Like that is pastor. Like hopefully at the very beginning, you say something funny. So people start paying attention to you at some point. They're not yawning the entire way through. And then when you get too serious, you need a moment of levity and bring everybody up. Ha ha ha. And then go back down. Right. And so like, that's what I was, that's kind of what I was raised on. That's what I was trained on and that sort of thing. But a few years back, um, I discovered kind of a new method and I wanted to share with you what that method was. Um, rather than three points every single weekend, what I do is I organize my, my, my manuscript, uh, into, into five different pieces. And the first piece is a me section. And so when I came out and I said, Hey, I'm pastor Peter. And I made you guys giggle a little bit and talked about a donut wall and dirty kids and all that stuff. That me section is establishing, um, some sort sort of uh, trust. I'm trying to establish trust for you in me, right? Oh, this person's approachable. He's so nice. I should listen to the things that he has to say. Also, his name is Peter and I understand he's the senior pastor here. So there's some authority behind the things that he's saying. It would be different if we had Danny Gavini, youth director coming out here, right? They're like, oh, I'm out of here. Having a youth director preach on Easter, forget about it, right? Um, I was just kidding. I love Danny. I don't know where he is, but Regardless, that's that first section, that me section, establishing some credibility. That second section that I do is in the we section. The we part of my message is the establishment of tension in the message. We, like in this section, I'm asking a question that my message needs to answer. For example, if I'm teaching on biblical marriage... Right? I'm going to say something like there are some of you in here that are probably frustrated with the state of your marriage and the lack of communication in your marriage. Right? So there's a, there's a tension that's established there. All of a sudden it's like, okay, we're going to talk about what it looks like to have a biblical marriage all of a sudden. I'm establishing tension there. And then the section after that is the God portion. God portion is oftentimes where I spend the lion's share of the morning. We talk about what scripture then has to say about that tension, right? And that's when we, we get all exegetical on the whole thing and read about God's word and, and, and what he has to say about it. And then after that, the next section is the you section. So we have me, we, God, and in you. And so the you section is the practical application of scripture, right? So we, we read about what God's word had to say. Okay. What is, how does this apply to your life now? You personally, what is the you section of that? And that section should really uh, release that tension that we established before, right? And the last section is the we section. You want to hint, if you're with us on a regular basis and you want to know when I'm like five minutes from ending, listen from the, for the word imagine, yeah, if you hear me say the word imagine, you're like, all right, five minutes, here we go. We're, we're, we're landing the plane. Because that last section really is a small vision cast regarding what it would look like if the entire congregation, the entire body of Christ did what it is the Bible told us to do. And so, you can, I mean, you can set your watch by it. Five minutes, three minutes, if, I'm, uh, if I've gone too long earlier before. But so as I was trying, checking on kind of how to frame 
the greatest story that's ever been told. And I was trying to figure out how to establish a tension that would carry us through the entire message. I decided that the tension needed to be something along the lines of everyone who has access to the gospel has to decide who they believe Christ is at some point or another. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your background, regardless of, of, of how you were raised or whatever, everybody at some point, if you have access to the gospel, which you're sitting in here, which means you do, if you have access to the gospel, you have to at some point decide what it is that you believe about Jesus, whether good, whether bad, or whether ambivalent. You know, maybe you've, you've grown up in church like I did, grown up in church like, like my kids have no choice but to come to church with us every Sunday. Like, Dad, we're going to church again. I'm like, yeah, bro, sorry, get in the car. Um, so may, maybe that was you, though, growing up. And uh, you, 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 like deciding your feelings about Jesus, maybe it was a little bit easier for you to decide about Jesus than other people. Because you grew up in it. You recognize the things that you're supposed to do, right? For some of you who maybe haven't been to church in a little while, you, you walked in this morning you're like, okay, yeah, welcome by the worship pastor. We stand up for the opening song and we sit down for, uh, for the announcements. We stand up again after the next song and then we pray and so we're quiet. And then the last song, we're going to sit down because no one asked us to stand up, right? And the pastor's going to come out. And like you understand what is happening at church. You could walk into most churches in America and not feel weird, right? You could walk in and just be like, oh yeah, I get it. They're doing church. This is how we do church. This is how Americans do church. And so for those of you who grew up, maybe it's simpler for you. Those of you who grew up in the church, rather, it's been simpler for you to be able to understand what it is uh, that church is about and who it is that Jesus is. Maybe you never, uh, maybe you grew up never going to church. And the most you heard about him was that his birthday is on Christmas. And because his birthday is on Christmas, we celebrate that and we get a whole bunch of presents because Jesus was born. Like, hey, I don't know anything about him, but I'm a big fan of his birthday, right? Like maybe for you, that's what, that's what that looks like. And still there's others maybe in here who grew up. And uh, as you were growing up, maybe your household was a little bit more hostile towards Jesus. Maybe, maybe not just, ah, uh, we don't really care about it, but maybe it was, it was, man, we're not even kind. We don't even talk about Jesus because maybe there's some hurt there. Maybe at some point in your life, someone in your life who professed to be a Christian did something that maybe wasn't so Christ-like. I don't know what it is, but maybe you grew up, regardless of the camp that each of us fall into this morning, you at some point have had to decide how it is you feel about Jesus, whether good thoughts, whether ambivalent thoughts or negative ones, the person of, Je of Jesus demands a decision from each of us. The person of Jesus demands a decision from each of us. The same was true with the people back when he was walking the earth around 2000 years ago. Jesus was an incredibly polarizing person. And if you heard about Jesus, you had an opinion about him. It was impossible for you to not have an opinion about him. It would be kind of like dropping the name Donald Trump today, right? Yeah, I heard one, one giggle. That's good. 
But for a lot of us in here, we're like, okay, no, not for all, a lot of us. All of us in here have some sort of preconceived notion or just notion. It's not even preconceived about president Donald Trump. For some of us, we're like, man, greatest guy, greatest president who ever lived. Uh, he can do no wrong. I don't care what it is that he does. He's my president. And because of that, like I support him a hundred percent. And there's other people in here who are like, yeah, he's my president, whatever. And there's other people in here who are like Donald Trump. That guy is the worst person to ever walk the face of the earth. And it doesn't matter what he does in office. Uh, I will never, ever like Donald Trump right? It is a, he is a completely and totally polarizing character. And so when you think about even Jesus and him coming to flip the established church on his head at the time, how much more so polarizing would he be than even the president of the United States? I mean, Jesus explodes onto the scene, starting with his baptism from John the Baptist. Then he comes and he, he starts this incredible teaching that no one has ever heard of before. This authoritative teaching that no one has ever heard before. He starts healing people. Starts performing uh, all of these miraculous signs. And then we get to Friday night. And some of you are here with us for our Good Friday service. And Friday night, man, it was a dark night. And the, the, the established church, the, the government at the time, they thought they had won. They thought that they had put Christ to death and it was over and done. But the fun thing is, is, is Christ, even as he was dying on the cross and he uttered those words, it is finished. And to the people who were there, they probably heard something very different. They thought, yeah, it is. We win. We finished it. But ultimately three days later, we get the resurrection of Christ and we understand what it is that he said or what it is that he meant when he said it is finished. The problem though is that people have made a decision regarding who Jesus is based on incomplete data. We need to take a second and determine the historicity of Christ. Historicity is essentially like, historically speaking, let's talk about Jesus, okay? That's the historicity of Christ, historically speaking. And a way to determine that historicity of an event is what is called inference to the best explanation. Inference to the best explanation. William Lane Craig has described this as an approach where we begin with the evidence that's available to us and then infer what would, if true, provide the best explanation of that evidence. In other words, we should accept an event as historical if it gives the best explanation for the evidence surrounding it. So let's look at the evidence and let's come up with an explanation, right? Mind-blowing how that should work. When we look at all the evidence, the truth of the resurrection becomes incredibly clear as the best explanation. I'm going to walk you through a couple pieces of this. There's no other theory that actually even comes close to accounting for the evidence that's presented. There is solid historical grounds for the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we hear a little bit about some of these things in John chapter 20. It starts off by saying this in verses one through nine. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running out of the tomb or so she came running to Simon Peter. She wasn't in the tomb. Came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple who is John, the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. 
So Peter and the other disciple started to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Can I pause right there and just say, come on, John, really? Like, you're going to use this opportunity to talk about how slow Peter was and how fast you are? Like, I get it. I grew up and I wasn't the fastest kid in the world and my brother was really fast. And so, like, I hurt for Peter here. Like, I know, like, Peter means the rock. And I think it is true in this instance as well. Um, but, yeah, it took a couple of you a second to get that. But the other disciple outran Peter, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So even now, with an empty tomb, like they still didn't understand exactly what was going on. But to begin with, uh, what, what is the evidence that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was discovered empty? It was discovered by a group of women. Um, on a Sunday following the crucifixion. Now, the, the resurrection was preached in the same city where Jesus had been buried shortly before. And Jesus' disciples didn't go to some obscure place where no one had heard of Jesus to begin preaching about the resurrection. Right? There was, it wasn't some obscure Like, Jesus would have known. The whole city was a powder keg about to explode during Holy Week. From the time that Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday to the time that he was crucified on Friday. This is a polarizing figure. Like, during, like during this Passover, this week before Passover, thousands and thousands and thousands of people would have descended on this city. They all would have had an opinion about Jesus because he's the guy who runs in and knocks over the money changing tables, right? He's the guy who's rebuking people. He's the guy who sent his disciples to take someone's donkey and borrow an upper room at some point. Like people would have had an opinion about Jesus, everybody there. And so the fact that he was buried in the same place that everybody had an opinion of him and then the tomb was empty we should know that, that like, no one would have stolen him. People would have known about it. People would have known where he was buried. Yet no one said anything about it. They couldn't have done this if Jesus was still in the tomb. No one would have believed them. No one would have been foolish enough to believe a man had raised from the dead when his body lay dead in the tomb for everybody to see. No one would have done that. Beyond that, the, the earliest Jewish arguments against Christianity admit the empty tomb. In Matthew 29, 11, uh, 29, 11 through 15, there's a reference made to the Jews' attempt to refute Christianity by saying that the disciples stole the body. This is significant because it shows that the Jews at the time didn't deny the empty tomb. Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because the Jews did not like what was happening. The Jews did not like what Jesus was bringing to the table. Jesus was coming and literally flipping over everything that, that they had established. And so because of that, the Jews saying, now that tomb is empty. We should recognize that somebody who hates the other person is verifying the very fact that was put forth. 
The Jewish leaders were opposed to Christianity. They're, they're what we would call hostile witnesses in acknowledging the empty tomb. They were admitting the reality of a fact that was certainly not in their favor. So why would they admit the tomb was empty unless the evidence was too strong to be denied? This is called positive evidence from a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits a fact that is decidedly not in its favor, that fact is indeed genuine. And the empty tomb is supported by the burial story as well. New Testament scholars agree that the burial story is one of the best established facts about Jesus. Not the resurrection story, the, his actual burial. One reason for this is the inclusion of a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. As the one who actually buried him. Joseph was a member of the Jewish, Jewish Sanhedrin, a sort of Jewish Supreme Court if you will. And people in this ruling class were simply too well known for fictitious stories about them to be pulled off in this way. This would, this would have um, exposed the Christians as fraud so they couldn't have circulated a story about burying Jesus unless it was true. Beyond that, like I said before, this, the, the eyewitness account, the first people to find Jesus were women. Why is this important? Because the testimony of women in first century Jewish culture was considered worthless. Now, guys, make sure that as you're talking about what you learned this morning, you don't dwell on this piece. I talked about first century Jewish culture. Context clues, okay, boys? Just remember that as you go to have brunch later on. So... But it was considered worthless. A theologian not named me says, if the empty tomb story were a legend, then it most likely that the male disciples would have, made, uh, would, have made the, would have been the first to discover the empty tomb. The fact that the despised women whose testimony was deemed worthless were the chief witnesses to the fact of the empty tomb can only be plausibly explained if, like it or not, they actually were the discoverers of the empty tomb. So in fact, the first eyewitnesses, the prime eyewitnesses to this were women, speaks volumes about the fact that this authentically happened. This was true. Uh, Jacob Creamer, he, was a, he specialized in the study of the resurrection, and is a, he's a New Testament critic. He said, by far, most exegetes hold firmly the reliability of the biblical statements... Uh, about the empty tomb. And he lists 28 scholars, 28 different people to back up that fantastic, that fantastic claim. There is simply no plausible explanation today to account for Jesus's tomb being empty. There's simply not. If we deny the resurrection of Jesus, we're left with an inexplicable mystery. The resurrection of Jesus is not just the best explanation for the empty tomb. It's the only explanation for the empty tomb. But beyond that, we can then talk about the resurrection appearances, right? There's evidence that Jesus' disciples had real experiences with one whom they believe was the, the risen Christ. These people, these, these 11 men, this, commonly, this isn't commonly disputed today because we have the testimony of the original disciples themselves, that they saw Jesus alive again. And you don't need to believe in the, reliable, the reliability of the Gospels to believe this. 
Um, raise your hand if you were alive during Watergate. Anybody? Some of you guys are like, I'm not raising my hand. Yeah, okay, good. So you're alive during Watergate. This is one of the reasons that I understand to be true, that I, that I, that I believe what the disciples saw was true. Okay, during Watergate, there were 12 men who were asked to keep a secret. Guess how long they were able to keep that secret? Two and a half weeks, right? Less than three weeks, they were able to keep this secret. Their livelihood was on the line, right? Their families were on the line. Their jobs were on the line. Their reputations were on the line. Everything they had was on the line. These people involved with Watergate, and still they couldn't keep their mouths shut about it, right? They were just people, Right? Like some of us later on today, we're like, hey, did you hear about that one thing that I heard about earlier? Like, that's just what people do. We talk. Okay? The disciples, though, not a single one of them, not a single one of them, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, recanted on their story. All 11 of them, from the time that Jesus was raised from the dead to the time that 10 of 11 of them were martyred, recanted on their story. None of them talked about it or none of them talked negatively about it and said, well, actually it didn't happen. We had Jesus' body out back, right? Like none of them said that. Why would none of them say that? Well, we have a couple options. The first option is, is they were lying, right? They were lying. It's probably not the best call. And like I said, with, with this many people, with this many people, uh, the, the idea that a lie could remain as concise and irrefutable as, as the evidence that we have probably simply isn't the case. The next option is, well, maybe they were hallucinating. There's another common theory that especially after Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and then he appeared to the disciples in a locked room. Right? We remember that, 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 the, that Jesus and his disciples were in a locked room, or his disciples were in a locked room, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Right? And they're like, whoa, time out. So people assume that, oh, I think, they were, I think they were probably all hallucinating. Well, here's the problem with that. There's no such thing as group hallucination. All of them would have to hallucinate the very exact same thing at the exact same time. Beyond that, there's evidence of them touching Jesus. There's evidence of them eating with Jesus. There is a physicality to the resurrection as well. And so the idea of them hallucinating doesn't make any sense. So the only other feasible option then is they really saw the risen Christ. That they were simply telling the truth. Were they lying? On this view, the disciples knew that Jesus hadn't really risen, but they made up the story about the resurrection. We already talked about how the feasibility of that and a long-term lie for literally the rest of their lives to never recant a story, even when they were being killed because of that story. I don't know about you. I've told some lies before. I've never been willing to die because of any of them. Like, no, no, no. Like, I wasn't even willing to get grounded for one of them when I was in high school. I was like, no, no, sorry. That was a lie. I'm telling the truth now. Can I not be grounded? Yep, you're good. Okay, good. We're good. Right? So, I mean, it's just absurd that they would be lying. It's absurd that they would be hallucinating. And so the disciples believed they had seen the risen Jesus because they really had seen the risen Jesus. So the resurrection appearances alone demonstrate the resurrection. The best explanation is that Christ, in fact, rose from the dead. 
That's the theory that best explains the most evidence. That means that that theory is most likely to be true. The resurrection is the only hypothesis that explains all of the evidence. And I'm happy to talk with you more. I can't fit it in on an Easter message that I'm supposed to be really concise on because Kyle's like, we have to get people out on time. Like, let's talk for an hour. Um, We won't do that to you guys. But it explains all of it. And if we deny the resurrection, we must come up with an other independent explanation for the behavior and the evidence and its fallacy then. You can't simply say, I don't believe it and dismiss it unless you have something else to replace it with. And unfortunately in society today, that's where we find a lot of people saying, nah, that's an old wives tale. Well, the eyewitnesses account, the eyewitness accounts, uh, some of them were transcribed as early as seven years after Jesus's death, burial and resurrection. What does that tell you? That tells you that not enough time had passed for legend to be able to build, right? I mean, think about some of you out here who, uh, who are incredible athletes in high school, right? At least some of you think you were incredibly athletes in high school. And as you get further and further away, the legend grows, right? But seven years out, everybody's like, no, you weren't a legend in high school. I remember you, you had one play that you talk about over and over and over again. You weren't that good. Right? Not enough time had passed for legend to be able to grow about Jesus, especially someone who rose from the dead. Right? People would have said, no, they killed him. He's dead. He's buried in this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Let me take you over there and show you where he is. It's simply not true. But we have to ask ourselves then what implications this has for our lives. Why does it matter? And why, or is this some dry, dusty old piece of history that has no relevance to our lives? I believe that the resurrection is the most important truth in the world. It has far-reaching implications on our lives. First, the resurrection proves that the claims Jesus made about himself are true. What then did Jesus claim? He claimed to be God. Now, if Jesus had stayed dead in the tomb, it would be foolish to believe this claim. If Jesus had stayed dead, his claim about God, about being deity, about being God, would be absolutely foolish. The resurrection proves that what Jesus said about himself is true. He is fully God and he is fully man. Second, have you, have you ever wondered what reasons there are to believe in the Bible? Is there a thing, by the way, I was talking about, oh, the Bible's really important, you need to believe the Bible, all that stuff, right? Have you ever thought about why it's important? To believe it? Is there good reason to believe that it was inspired by God? Is it simply a bunch of interesting myths and legends? Right? A lot of people love to point out the idea of the flood. Oh, well, there's the flood, and uh, ancient Near East religions also talk about a big flood, and, and we think that the biblical scholars just kind of piece together different myths and different things from other religions. Or how about there actually was a flood, and numerous people wrote about that same flood? Right? So, but, but what's the, how, how is it that we can say that the Bible is indeed, why should we read it? Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have seen this validates his claim to be God. And if his claim is like, if he is God, he speaks with absolute certainty and final authority being God. Therefore, what Jesus said about the Bible must be true, must be true. Of course, we're going to accept the testimony of one who rose from the dead over the testimony of a scholar who is going to die 
and not raised from the dead three days later. What did Jesus say about the Bible then? He said it was the inspired word of God and that it cannot error. I'll accept the testimony of Jesus over over what I would like to be true and over the opinions of other men and women. Therefore, I believe that the Bible was inspired by God without error. Don't get misled by the numerous uh, skeptical and unbelieving theories about the Bible. Trust Jesus. He rose from the dead. All of these things hinge on that. And by the way, Jesus is the only religious leader who has risen from the dead. The only one. All other religious leaders are still in their tombs. Who would you believe? I think the answer is pretty clear. That Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that what he said was true. Therefore, we must accept his statement to be the only way to God. In John 14, 6, where it says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The resurrection of Christ provides genuine hope for eternal life. Because Jesus says that by trusting in him, we'll be forgiven of our sins and therefore escaping condemnation at the judgment, at the end of our lives. The New Testament doesn't just tell us that Christ rose from the dead and leave us wondering why he did this. It answers that he did this because we are sinners. It says we did, he did this because we have sinned. We are deserving of God's judgment. And since God is just... He cannot simply let our sins go. The penalty for our sins must be paid. And the good news is that God, out of his love, became man in Jesus Christ in order to pay the penalty for sinners. On the cross, Jesus died in the place of those who had come to believe in him. He took upon himself the very death that each and every one of us deserved. The forgiveness that Jesus died and rose to provide is given to those who trust in him for salvation and a happy life, a good life. And the Bible says that Christ's resurrection is the pattern for those who believe, for those who will believe in him to follow. In other words, those who believe in Christ will one day be resurrected by God just as he was. The resurrection proves that those who trust in Christ will not be subject to eternity in hell. It proves that our bodies will be resurrected one day because of the resurrection of Christ. Believers will one day experience forever the freedom of having a glorified soul and a glorified body. Romans 8, 11. It says, and if the spirit of him who was raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Every weekend here at FBH, we want to give people an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And this isn't a message this morning that's just like, rah, rah, go Jesus. It's the reality of the cross. The reality of the cross is that people put Jesus to death, but Jesus willingly submitted himself to do so. People put him to death and he conquered that death three days later. Is that something to celebrate? Absolutely. But for some of us in here, we don't yet truly know what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus. 
And that's why even on an Easter Sunday, when we got guests here, we got donut walls, we got photo booths, we got baptisms in a sec, we got all of those things. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that there are people in here who don't yet know Jesus and need to know them, need to know him as their personal savior. It's the reality of the cross. If you haven't yet made your mind up concerning who Jesus is, And something I said this morning, something we sang this morning, the baptisms that we're going to have in a second, whatever it is, sparks that thought in your head about what is it that I, what is it that I believe about Jesus? Because we all have to believe something. In just a second, we're going to pray and, uh, and, and how we end services here is with what we call the ABCs of faith. And it's it's simply the opportunity to admit that we're a sinner in need of a savior. B, believe that God sent his son to die on the cross on our behalf. And C, choose to follow him every single day. If that's you, I would just ask you to follow along in that prayer when we get to in just a second. But beyond that, today, we get the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Christ with a ton of baptisms. We're a Baptist church, so we love stuff like this, right? Uh, it's literally in our name. So we're going to get excited about it. It's going to look a little bit different than we have, than it has in the past, though. Because we have, we have 14 people getting baptized across both of our services, which is incredibly exciting for us. Um, yeah, give them a round of applause. But scripture tells us that we're supposed to repent and be baptized. Supposed to repent and be baptized. Um, And with those 14 people being baptized, they have all come to a class. They've all talked to us about the fact that they have placed their faith in Christ. They've talked to us about their different testimonies and that sort of thing. And so normally what we would have, or in the past what we have had, is a table out. And they'll read their testimony. They'll read their verse um, and that sort of thing. We have so many. If we spent two minutes on every person, you guys guys would miss brunch. Okay, so uh, we want to get you guys out of here on time. But if you want to know the different verses that each of them selected at our guest services table out front. There's a sheet with everybody's name and verse on both sides of it. You can grab one of those on your way out. Um, but, but baptism in general, it represents the sim- it symbolically represents Christ's death going down burial underwater and resurrection as they come up in Christ. And so we can't think of a better way to celebrate the resurrection of Christ than baptizing a whole bunch of people today. And so when they get baptized, yeah, when they get baptized, um, I'm going to invite the band to come out actually right now, band magically appear for me if you would. Um, but the band's going to come out. We're going to start singing. We're going to do worship. And then you're just going to see Jeff's going to be baptizing some people. I'm going to be baptizing some people just because we're singing doesn't mean that we can't get excited about baptism. So once these people go down and come up out of the water, this room should be a party because of the fact that they have declared their faith in Christ. So you shout, you clap. If you brought a gong, you can hit that gong as loud as you want. Okay. Because these people are declaring their faith in Jesus this morning. And we have a savior who is risen. Amen, church. Let's get after it. Amen. That's a lot to celebrate. Yes. Listen, we're excited that you're here this morning. We want you to enjoy your Easter with your family, with your friends. We want you to remember what you heard this morning, but I want you to pray with me. We want to celebrate these folks and we want you to know if you're here this morning and you need to know what this is about, what a relationship with Christ is about. We want, we don't want you to leave without knowing for sure where you stand with Jesus. All right. Pray with me. God, we are grateful. 
uh, to be here this morning, to celebrate as a church family with friends, uh, with neighbors. God, it's just a, a great day to know that you are a living Savior. We believe, uh, God, that you have given us a plan, that we can have a relationship with you, that if we would admit that we need you, that we have sin in our life, that we have fallen short of what you have uh, established for us as uh, as a way to live our life, that we admit that we're sinners, that we would believe in this person, Jesus, that Peter has just spoke about and his resurrection, and that we would choose to follow him. As simple as that, ABC, if we would choose to follow him with our life, we will be saved. We can have a relationship with you. So God, we thank you for that. Thank you for that truth. And God, it's our prayer that if if there is someone here this morning that needs to know that truth, that they would pray that prayer, that they would know you today. God, we are grateful. Thank you for a place to come to celebrate. Thank you for good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we can celebrate together. Bless us now as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.